I remember Sabha telling me that it was the dead of the night and the car stopped in a dark wooded place and her uncle yanked her out of the car. Saba was so scared that she was shaking and she kept saying, I'm sorry, what have I done? Please forgive me, please forgive me. And she was yanked out and then shot point blank. Hi, I'm Patrick Butler, Senior Vice President of Content and Community at the International Center for Journalists. Welcome to Chasing the Story, the ICFJ podcast that gives the mic back to journalists. In every episode, an outstanding journalist takes us behind the scenes to explain how they chased and landed a major story. Today, we're going to hear from Pakistani documentary maker and two-time Academy Award winner, Sharmin Obed Chinoy. When Sharmin heard the story of a young Pakistani girl who survived an honor-killing attempt by her father and uncle, she set out to make a documentary. The movie, A Girl in the River, convinced the Pakistani government to review its laws on honor killings and won Sharmin an Oscar for Best Short Documentary. Sharmin has made over two dozen multi-award winning films in over 16 countries around the world. She is known for her movies that highlight gender inequality. Sharmin was ICFJ's 2017 Knight International Journalism Award winner. This is her story. My name is Sharmin Obechinoy. I'm a storyteller and I have been working um, for the better part of the last two decades, amplifying the voices of marginalized communities around the world. I had been reading about honor killings for a number of years in local newspapers in Pakistan. And I knew that this was a story I wanted to make a documentary film about. But it was very difficult to find someone who had survived honor killing. Honor killing is practiced in many countries around the world. It is the brutal act of a man usually a family member, a father, a brother, a husband, uh, an uncle, killing a woman in the family because she has transgressed some unwritten rule. She's had the audacity to ask for divorce or she um, is seen talking to a man uh, and is suspected of having illicit relationship or because she dared to work or attend school. In almost all the cases of honor killings, the woman ends up dead in an unmarked grave. And it is very difficult then to find somebody who can tell their own story. In 2013, my team and I set out trying to find stories. When we were initially looking for stories of honor killings and we were filming them in the south of Pakistan, in the northwest of Pakistan, we felt something was missing. The voice, the woman who could talk about her ordeal was no longer there. So no one could articulate that story. We were getting third and secondhand accounts of other family members, but having that primary voice was so important for you to feel connected to that story, for you to understand the ordeal a woman goes through when she's a victim of honor killing. And so we almost gave up. But then one morning I was reading the local newspaper in Karachi, which is my home city. And I remember reading four lines hidden deep inside the newspaper. And it said, a young woman had been shot by her father and her uncle 
and put in a gunny bag and left in the river. And she had survived. She was suspected to be a victim of honor killing. I think it was about seven o'clock in the morning when I read that piece. And I ran to work, called a meeting, got my team together and said, this is the story we need to find. Here is a young woman who has survived on a killing. She will be able to articulate what it meant for her to have her father and her uncle betray her. And so we didn't have a lot of information. We just had the village where she had been shot. And we picked up the phone and started making calls in all the local hospitals in the area. And I had just one name, Saba, to go by. And after making a few calls, we found the hospital where she was. And I remember picking up the phone and asking to speak to the head of the hospital. In my experience, I had found that a lot of men in positions of power resisted when a woman, a journalist like myself would call. And I was fully prepared um, for the for the doctor on the other end to hang up the phone. And I remember thinking to myself, what is the story I'm going to give him? How am I going to get access to Saba? Because the minute he finds out that I am Shermino Bechinoy, he is going to say no. And the reason I say that is because I have a history in my home country of highlighting issues that make men deeply uncomfortable. In 2012, I won Pakistan's first Academy Award by highlighting the story of acid violence in Pakistan that also impacted legislation and the way the story was reported. Let's just say it didn't win me many supporters. Men began to think that I had an agenda against them. And so when I was pursuing a story of honor killings, often doors were shut on my face because they didn't want me to have access. I picked up the phone and called the head of the hospital where Saba was. And I said, hello, my name is Sharvina Bechinoy, and I know that Saba is at your hospital. Please tell me how she is doing, and is there a way for me to speak with her? The gentleman at the other end of the call stopped and paused and said, I am a huge fan of your work, and we have saved Saba's life. Please come to the hospital and speak to her family. You would be doing a great service to the women of Pakistan if you were able to persuade her to tell her story. I couldn't believe that, that, this, that we had access and we mobilized the team and I sent the team off that very day to South Punjab, which is a area um, which is known to be one of the most backward parts of Pakistan. It has high levels of unemployment, low levels of literacy, and it has the most number of reported cases of violence against women in the entire country. Three members of my team left that afternoon and arrived at the hospital to speak with Saba and her family to get access. I was to fly the next morning. Um, I was getting the, the crew and the cameras and everything together. Haya, who is my associate producer, arrived with Asad, my cameraman, ahead of me and managed to speak to Saba and her doctors and her family members, her husbands and her mother-in-law who were present and, and got permission. When I arrived into that hospital room and opened the door, 
I saw a petite young girl lying in the hospital bed, which was three times her size. She had her face bandaged and her back was turned towards the door. And I remember walking in and saying, Saba, and this young woman rolled over and suddenly her face had this look of determination. And she said, I want to tell my story because I don't want what has happened to me to happen to anyone else. And the men who did this, my father and my uncle will be punished for it. I have to say that I was taken aback because it's very rare to have a young woman who comes from poverty, who hasn't been exposed to education, to be so determined to, in this male-dominated society that we live in, to send family members to jail. But Saba was determined, and that's the day we began filming her. We spent the next couple of days speaking to Saba and her husband and other family members, her mother-in-law, her brother-in-law. Saba had fallen in love with Kesar, and Kesar had asked for Saba's hand in marriage. They were neighbors, and they fell in love, living two streets away from each other. Love has a price to pay in Pakistan, much more than it does in many other countries. Even though Kesar's family followed the traditional route of asking for her hand in marriage, Saba's uncle decided that she had defamed the family by speaking to Kesar and by falling in love. So he convinced Saba's father to kill Saba and call it an honor killing. That the day that Saba was shot, the family went away to an event and Saba was lured by her father and uncle in the car on the pretext of going home and they drove her to a dark wooded place. I remember Saba telling me that it was the dead of the night and the car stopped in a dark wooded place and her uncle yanked her out of the car. Saba was so scared that she was shaking and she kept saying, I'm sorry, what have I done? Please forgive me, please forgive me. And she was yanked out and then shot point blank. Saba is very lucky that she survived. And the only way she did was because she moved her head. And so the bullet grazed her cheek, but didn't hit its mark. And she fell. Because she fell to the ground, they thought that she had died. And they were so nervous that they put her in a gunny bag, tied the gunny bag, and threw her in a flowing river. The water woke up Saba, and she started kicking back and forth and managed to open the gunny bag and swim to the shore. She didn't know where she was because it was so dark. And she saw a light further down the road, which she followed and arrived at a fuel station. Because it was the dead of the night, the fuel station was closed, but there was an attendant there who called the rescue services the minute he saw her. That attendant saved her life. Saba arrived at a hospital which was run by an incredible doctor and his team. And they did a surgery to remove the bullet from her face. And she spent the next week in the hospital recovering. I went to the police to speak with them to understand um, how they were following the case. And he said to me, I have made it my life's mission to find them and jail them because no daughter should have to go through what Sabah did. 
And I had hope then as a storyteller. I was investigating this attempted murder and honor killing, but I had hope that Sabah's story had all the right ingredients of justice. A determined young woman, a police officer who was equally determined to find the perpetrators, the system would work. And so we interviewed the doctors who spoke about how Sabah came into surgery early in the early hours of the morning, how they were called from their homes and how when upon hearing the story, they were motivated to ensure that Sabah's face would not bear the scars of uh, the bullet, that they worked tirelessly with the plastic surgeons to sew her face back. And, and in all of this, my question was, where is Sabah's mother and how does she feel about this? Where her, are her siblings and what do they think? And so when Sabah was released from the hospital and her husband, Kesar, was wheeling her out, she looked at me and said, I will never forgive them. And I didn't quite understand what she meant. Why would she forgive them? She had been so determined, but it was almost as if she was telling me to convince herself that she would never forgive them. The very next day, her father and her uncle were arrested and sent to jail. We arrived in jail to speak to them. As a storyteller, I think it's always important to understand what the mindset of the perpetrators of violence is. What were they thinking? What makes a father pull the trigger on his own daughter? When we arrived at the jail, the first thing that hit me was the smugness on their face. They almost had a smile and no remorse. And when I began to question them about why they had done so, and how could the father kill the daughter, they kept repeating almost like a mantra. She deserved to be killed. She did something that is not allowed. She should have known better. And this is the fate of young women if they don't listen to their families. And when I asked him if he had any remorse, he said none whatsoever. The father, in fact, asked me, what would you do if your daughter did this? It, it was almost as if, how could I have a different answer to him? Like, how could I? How could anyone defy a father's will? But there was something else behind that smugness. I felt that they were very sure that they would be free men soon. And that was the loophole in the law that had convinced them because they had known other people in their villages, in their towns who had killed their daughters, who had been allowed to walk free. And this is something that I had been talking about for a very long time in my home country. If you do not make examples of men who kill women, who rape women, who beat women, if you do not send them to jail, you embolden other men to walk in their footsteps because they do not think that it is a crime. Sabah hired a lawyer, an excellent lawyer, who spoke to the family members and prepared the case. And very soon afterwards, a group of village elderly men visited Sabah's house. We, our cameras were there to document it. As part of the negotiation process of honor killing and forgiveness that used to take place in Pakistan, the men played a very big role in absolving the perpetrators of honor killing. They would gather, 
they would go to the home of the victim's family, in this case, Saba's in-laws, and negotiate with them, saying that they should give forgiveness, that a daughter cannot send her father to jail, that there should be forgiveness, and they should realize that they did, the father and the uncle did this for honor. When the lawyer was present and tried to negotiate and understand why they were there, he was shut down. They had no answers for him. The only thing to say is, this is in our tradition. The next morning, we followed her. Saba went to court and made a statement saying that her father and uncle had tried to kill her and that she was going to pursue the case. Over the course of the next few months, we would follow her to court. We would speak to the lawyer. And we would also see that the men from the local village would keep coming back and forth, back and forth, as if trying to wear the family down so that the negotiation process would continue. In the meantime, the police was building a very strong case. And we went to visit Saba's mother and her siblings. They didn't want to speak to us. So every time they would hear our car enter the street, they would lock they would pull the shutter down of their front door and put a lock on it, pretending that they were away. After our fifth trip, we decided that we had to try another way to get them to speak to us. And so one afternoon, we parked the car very far away and walked on foot to uh, the front door and knocked on it. And Saba's younger brother opened the door and we negotiated access with him so that he could call the mother out. And then once the mother saw us physically, we were able to negotiate with her and talk to her and tell her that it was very important for her side of the story to be told. She was estranged from her daughter, her husband was in jail, and she was left to pick up the pieces because she had lost both of them. And so I think that my reasoning worked and she, she finally relented and allowed us in. So we had arrived at a time when the daughters and, and the mother were cooking lunch. So they were chopping okra and tomato and onions, sitting in a large veranda on the ground. We settled with the cameras there and we started speaking with them. It was a very, very warm afternoon and I was expecting my second baby. I began to feel woozy. And I knew this interview was extremely important and I knew that I had to sit through it and get it. Um, but the smell of the onion and being outdoors made me very nauseous. So I remember looking at Haya and Asad and I was white and they looked at me and said, I think you need to go to the car. And so I literally ran out of the interview into the car took out a plastic bag and started throwing up, put the air conditioner on for 10 minutes and walked back into the house, up the stairs in the open veranda and started the interview. It was a very difficult interview for me to do because I knew that I, I was pregnant with a baby girl and here I was interviewing a mother who was justifying the actions of her husband and holding Saba accountable for the family's destruction. I'll never forget when she said, well, what did she expect? She knows the rules and regulations that we women have to follow. By transgressing those rules and regulations, she called it upon herself. 
what else could her father do? He was losing face in the community. We left, um, and in the coming months, I could tell that Sabah was getting tired. Every time we would speak to her, she would say, how long will this case go on for? How often will I have to go to court? Because going to court is quite an ordeal. Very few women have the courage to provide testimony in court in Pakistan. Those who do go are heckled and ridiculed. So when Sabah would go to court, she would hide her face. And she didn't want the cameras there. She didn't want to be signaled out. She didn't want to be the special person. She just wanted to blend in the crowd, go into court, give her testimony and leave. The system in Pakistan is is so stacked against women that at every court date, when Sabah would appear, either the judge would not show up or the lawyer for Sabah's father wouldn't show up and they would give another date. And so these delaying tactics would continue. But of course, it is a way to wear a woman down so that she doesn't go to court. And then finally, the day arrived when Sabah, when the case was coming to a conclusion where we felt hope, where Sabah was walking in to give her last piece of testimony. Our cameras followed her right up to the point where cameras allowed in. A police officer wagged his uh, finger at us and told us to take the cameras away and we had to shut them down and then we entered the courtroom. And then of course, the unexpected happened, which is, she said, I forgive my father and my uncle. There was silence in the courtroom, except for those of us who were making the film because we gasped. We could not believe that after months and months of fighting this case, this determined young woman had been worn down The system had failed her. I'd always wanted to tell a story of a victim of honor killing who was able to get justice, who was able to send the men to jail, who could become a shining example of bravado. That was a difficult day. In hindsight, I realized that if Sabah had sent her father and uncle to jail, it would have been an anomaly. She would have done something that very few women are able to do. Her forgiveness came as a blessing in disguise because it forced us filmmakers to think about the purpose of making this film. And we knew then that the film was meant to be a vehicle to push legislation in Pakistan, that through Sabah's eyes, through Sabah's story, we would be able to inspire people to see the system up close and personal and realize that the loophole in the law that allows for forgiveness to be closed. But instead of Being disappointed with the way that things had turned out, we were reinvigorated. We knew that we had a mission now, that our film was going to be a way for us to push for legislative change. And when the film was done, my very last shoot was with Sabah's father. I was in New York editing the film, nine months pregnant, and my associate producer, Haya, was in Pakistan. We heard that Sabah's father had been released from prison and I knew that I needed his interview. So Haya went and filmed that last interview in which she said, how do you feel now? And he said, I'm a hero in my village. Everywhere I go, I'm celebrated because of what I did. I upheld honor. I taught the young woman a lesson. Now no other girl will dare to fall in love and disobey her family. That was the ending of our film.
A few months later, the film was nominated for an Academy Award. And that allowed us to begin the conversation of changing the law in the country. We took A Girl in the River, The Price of Forgiveness, and we showed it across the country, in schools, in colleges, in community centers, mobilizing people to begin to have difficult conversations. Newspaper articles came out about the film. Universities divided, some siding with Sabah, some siding with Sabah's father. Heated discussions began to take place. And the prime minister of Pakistan came out publicly and congratulated me for being nominated for an Academy Award and asked if there was something he could do. I jumped at the opportunity and said, yes, of course. Why don't you have a screening of the film? I knew that we had a small window between the nomination and the Academy Awards to really get the country to pay attention. And so we nudged the prime minister's office to hold a screening, the first of its kind in Pakistan at the prime minister's secretariat, where the entire cabinet and members of the legislative chamber gathered to watch the film. And the prime minister made a very vocal statement. There is no honor in honor killing. The event was live telecast on national television right across the country, sending the message that honor killing was a serious, heinous crime. And then when we won and I stood on the podium at the Academy Awards, I held the prime minister accountable and said, the prime minister has pledged to change the law of honor killings in Pakistan. I knew that if I said it in front of billion people, that it would become a reality. And it did. A few months later, unfortunately, a diluted version of the law that we had been pushing was passed through. Men could no longer be forgiven for honor killing. A film did that. Sabah's bravery did that. But also, our determination to ensure that film would be used as a tool to bring change and a strategy that allowed us to do that eventually led to the film being the precipitous for legislative change on honor killing in Pakistan. Charmine, thank you so much for walking us through such a fascinating reporting process. Listeners, thank you for being with us. We will be back in two weeks with another great story. If you liked this episode, please follow us on social media at ICFJ and subscribe to our newsletter at ICFJ.org. And if you'd like to support other inspiring journalists like Charmine, please register for our 2022 Tribute to Journalists less than one week away on November 10th. The link for that will be in the show notes, along with links to Charmin's documentary and social media.